Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. If America held up a mirror to itself, what would it see? Let's get to the bottom line. For literally billions of people, America still represents a land of opportunity, where anyone can build themselves up, find success, and create a tomorrow that's better and with a higher quality of life for their children. Many see America as a bastion of freedom, where you can just believe whatever you want to believe. But once you scratch beneath that surface, you'll find a nation full of contradictions about opportunity, where the divides on race and income and basic opportunity have really widened. On the one hand, America is a huge empire with soldiers deployed in 150 countries, sometimes in the name of global security and sometimes in the name of transforming the culture and norms of other societies. But on the other hand, there are places in America where kids had to actually go to the parking lots of a McDonald's restaurant to get a decent Internet connection to attend school. This empire also can't get millions of its own citizens to believe in public health measures to protect themselves and their neighbors, like wearing a mask. And let's not forget the rejection of the election results and the assault on the United States Capitol just a few months ago. So is this an empire of contradictions? Well, today we're talking to someone who's been holding a mirror to American society for years and years saying, look, this is you. He is Wade Davis, professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Canada and National Geographic explorer in residence. When you put that mirror up to America, what are you seeing and what should we be seeing about ourselves? Well, you know, that, that essay, Steve, was written really at the kind of the in a sense, a low point of COVID, a place where New York streets were filling with the dead, and we really didn't know what this was about or where it was going to end or if it was going to end. Remember when I wrote that piece, I think it came out in August of 2020. At the time, vaccines were a distant um, promise on the horizon. At that time, the first vaccine ever to be developed quickly was for the mumps, and that had taken four years. So at the time, vaccines did not seemed to be imminent. Um, and what did seem to appear was a, a kind of failure of Americans to sort of see what had become of them, which seemed to me to be the first step. You know, this, this nation that emerged from World War II, not just economically dominant, but in a sense morally dominant, uh, with a level of affluence that allowed for the creation of the weekend, the creation of the middle class, a, a world in which a working man could, you know, a wife could stay at home and go off to work and create a middle-class wage, buy a house, buy a car, send his kids to good public schools, and so on. And, and that kind of illusion of America simply no longer existed um, as we entered this new century. Um, the disparity between rich and poor, salaries for the rich, incomes and security for the poor. Uh, you could go down almost any um, a kind of indice of, of, of social development domestically, and the scenario did not look good. And on top of everything, internationally, you had a strange situation where this quite aggressive nation, uh, in terms of geopolitics, China, with its own unique history, was not going to war. I mean, China hadn't gone to war since the 1970s. America really hadn't been at peace since the 1970s. Every three years, China was pouring more cement than America did in the whole 20th century. And the, these wars were bleeding treasure that could have readily gone into increasing the infrastructure of home. And I think this, this disconnect, of course, was creating social dislocation, even psychological dislocation, and accentuating this chasm between the haves and the have-nots, but also between the two political parties. 
Um, and all of this was becoming a kind of perfect storm during the birth of the era of the internet, the democratization of opinion, you know, the extraordinary fact that people can get online anonymously, say whatever they want, and 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 believe that their opinions value. You remember that Senator Patrick Moynihan famously said that, you know, you're entitled to your opinions, but not your own facts. But what we saw in the era of disinformation um, and, and, and polarity was the creation of new facts, you know, and, and that is never uh, good for a democracy. Well, let me ask you this, Wade. Uh, what I found fascinating about your essay which if I had written it, I would be accused, as you have been, of treason. I mean, you're in Canada, but uh, uh, of treason against the state, of, of, of being unpatriotic and unsupportive of America, as opposed to looking realistically. So I guess my question is, what do you think it is about the American psyche and, this, and its place in the world that it seems unable or unwilling to just take stock of the fact that it needs to sort through things to get back into a place where it's driving itself in the future as opposed to just being a victim of circumstances. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it does. I mean, first of all, I think since that peace of mind came out, Steve, we should acknowledge one thing, which I was not able to acknowledge in that uh, that piece. And you may have seen the quip or, or the meme going around the Internet. You know, China gave us COVID. America gave, gave the world vaccines. And let's mm -hmm. not forget that the development of these multiple vaccines in such short order not just represents the, the most extraordinary achievement of modern science, but also spearheaded by ingenuity that clearly um, was, was rooted in the American um, uh, scientific community and, and corporate community in terms of the major um, comp companies that rallied to make this possible in such short order. Don't forget that the you know the woman who who really figured out how to use um, RNA mm. in, in in the application as as it did, she won the Nobel Prize. I mean, just this wonderful woman in, from an American university, right? So so at the same time in that piece, I kind of was a little bit um, 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 uh, overly proud of my country of Canada, which at the time I wrote that had done exceptionally well with COVID. Well, of course, like all nations. It's, proven to be more complicated, more cases, more mortality, and so on. I, I think, in general, Canada did um, a better job because we really are a, a society of consilience, of cooperation. You know, we, we, we don't celebrate the individual at the exclusion of, of, the, of, the, um, of the collective, of the community. You know, we, we don't have a health care system which favors the wealthy. Uh, we certainly don't have hospitals where the private owners of the hospitals treat hospital beds almost as if rental properties. You know, there's a there's a fundamental difference in a nation that is a social democracy in which it, it is taken as a given that public education, that good universal health care are virtually human rights. And that just isn't um, part of the American Mythos, and some of this just comes out of the energy of America, which is what makes it great. You know, in the in, in the uh, wake of World War II, in particular, uh, we celebrated the individual with iconic intensity, um, but that was kind of the sociological equivalent right. of splitting the atom. You know, and so so part of this is just America, but I think part of this is just the the challenge of change. I mean, look, mm -hmm. America. Think about it. America went into World War II 
demilitarized. Bulgaria and Portugal had bigger armies. Um, you know, within three years, we had 15 million men and women in uniform. Uh, we had individual factories in Detroit that made more tanks than the entire German Reich. Uh, for every five pounds of equipment the Japanese got per capita to a frontline soldier, we got two tons and across mm -hmm. 13,000 kilometers of open ocean. And America emerged from the war with the rest of the world prostrate, right? Mm -hmm. And so in 1945, we made not, uh, 46, once we went back into automobile manufacturing, we made 95% of the world's automobiles. And so so with that kind of ascendancy came in a, inevitably a certain amount of pride and hubris, and it's difficult to back off from. Think of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's surprising to remember that the British Empire actually reached its greatest geographical extent as late as 1935. Well, of course, now we know that that, that empire was in in retreat, if you will, by the Diamond Jubilee. It was certainly bled white in the fields of Flanders in World War um, in uh, World War One, and by 1935, even as more of the world's map was painted red, the the the, the nation was utterly impotent against the uh, rise of of fascism in Nazi Germany. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you know, history history plays with a short deck. You well, know, I, no, all empires are born to fall, and none <laughs> of them anticipate their demise. But I find also that you said that Canada, in, in your writing, Canada is sort of like living in a condominium above a meth lab and kind of looking at well, that, you know, you I, know, the despair yeah, in Steve, America, I, I the drugs it. in America, you know. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this, Steve, that, I have to confess, I didn't know at the time I, I pinched that line from Robin Williams. It was, I, I just was sort of floating <laughs> in the It's a good internet. line. Robin had said, well, Robin was a friend, and he, Robin had said in one of his comedy routines that living in America, in Canada, is like living in an apartment above a meth lab. I mean, <laughs> but you know, um, uh, you know, it is it is funny for us in in Canada. I think we're in any social democracy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the United States. Don't forget, I chose to become an American citizen as well. I married an American. My kids are Americans. My father-in-law was almost U.S. president. My brother-in-law was a U.S. senator. My my son-in-law is serving on active duty um, in in the, in in the Navy right now uh, in the United States. My my nephew was a machine gunner grunt in the Marines in Afghanistan. So it's not wow. like I feel disconnected or in any way uh, cynical about the United States. My life was made possible by the United States um, in the years that I spent at Harvard. You know, this was an incredible gift to me as a foreigner. So don't get me wrong. Mm. Um, no one is is less interested in the demise of America than I am. And believe me, when China, if it is indeed ascendant with its, you know, ethnic policies, its domestic surveillance, its treatment of minorities such as the Uyghurs, I mean, hmm. if China is ascendant, I suspect we'll all be nostalgic for the so-called American century. But this said, as we look at the United States, for example, and, and realize that in any one given year, you know, by by about the month of April, there have been more fatalities due to handguns, Americans shooting each other, than occurred um, in uh, in the first month of the Normandy campaign in World War II. You know, we, we see these policies that seem designed to tear people apart. We see um, uh, a, a kind of demagoguery, and and you know, what we also see. I hate to say, we do see the fact that whether we like it or not, uh, in a sense, race 
is the story of America. You know, this is something that an American journalist told me when I was on assignment with National Geographic. We went over after 9-11. We wanted to do a story on the beauty of Islam hmm. um, because there was so much anti-Muslim um, demagoguery. And while we were in the deserts of the Sahara, my friend said, you know, race is the story of America. And at the time, I didn't think it could be so simple. But now I, I've kind of wondered, you know, and, and, you know, the reality is that racial divides based on slavery um, go back to the very birth of America. There was no North and South. I mean, New York was built by slaves. Wall Street is named for the wall that went around the slave market. You know, Benjamin Franklin owned slaves. I mean, you know, one of the big differences between Canada and the United States is that our founding father, if you will, John A. MacDonald, you know, didn't, um, didn't have a bunch of wooden dentures in his handsome face that contained human ivory ripped nine teeth from the mouth of his living slaves, but George Washington did. You know, our for founding fathers, unlike Jefferson, did not mortgage 140 of their slaves with the Dutch bank to build their, mm. their palatial home at Monticello. Uh, you know, Madison famously, as he wrote the, um, the, the, the Constitution, um, complained that in order to get books off the ships from London essential to his work, he had to sell a slave who had been in the family for all of his life. I mean, you know, Benjamin Franklin, even as he published some of the first um, tracks calling into question uh, and celebrating the ab abolitionist agenda, he himself owned three slaves, including a woman called Jemima. So in other words, this is, in a sense, a story of America. I mean, Robert E. Lee, heralded as the great general, which he was of the America, uh, Southern cause, was also, by definition, a traitor to his country, who, even in the wake of the war, condoned, um, you know, the, the, the KKK on, 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 on the campus of what became Washington and Lee University. He was a white supremacist to the core. The Civil War was not, as has often been said by someone I admire, like the avuncular Shelby Foote speaking to Ken mm. Burns in that famous Civil War series, it was never about states' rights. It was always and exclusively essentially about slavery. And so this is, this is sort of, you know, a curse. I mean, just before he died, Martin Luther King um, wrote a beautiful piece about Canada because he was giving some lectures here. And he said, you know, Canada was the North Star. Our mm. Negro spirituals, he wrote, encoded messages on how you could actually get north on the railroad to freedom in Canada. That doesn't mean Canada's a perfect place in terms of race and certainly in terms of our history with indigenous people, the First Nations. But we never were a society built on slavery. And that is in some sense, the inherent contradiction of the American experience, a country that birthed freedom and democracy through the lens of the Enlightenment, at the same time was living with that seeding wound, which was that their entire economy mm. was built on the atrocity of slavery. Torture was right. the grease of the engine of the American economy. Oh, wait. Uh, you talk about Robert E. Lee and slavery in, a, in another wonderful essay that I'll tell our readers about called This is America, a promissory note uh, not yet paid. You talk about Robert E. Lee, but we now just saw in Charlottesville um, just very recently the great statue of Robert E. Lee taken down. Also in Richmond, uh, Virginia, the, the, the statue that dominated the, uh, you know, the main boulevard uh, taken down and chopped up and shipped off 
so they can figure out what to do about it. In your piece, you quote James Baldwin, who is who has an optimism about the future, but he says we can't have, you know, essentially rose-tinted glasses looking at things. We need to see things how they are. So I guess as we're talking about essentially America unraveling in good ways and having that discussion, what are you seeing by way of, of I won't call it a bounce back because I'm not sure that's what we deserve or want, but essentially a more informed, more enlightened, less dysfunctional um, domestic context in America, and maybe unraveling the American empire with the rest of the world is a healthy thing. I mean, so how do you see the potential well, next steps? Well, that's a very interesting point you raise. I mean, um, uh, on the one hand, I think those of us who have some trepidation about the ascendancy of China for obvious reasons, uh, which are not racist reasons, they're simply about the political system, not about the Chinese people mm. per se, um, would be concerned about the demise of America. On the other hand, of course, empires have come and gone. I mean, I love the image, for example, of the collapse of the Roman Empire. And so the Italians kind of looked around and said, well, we're not going to do that again. Why don't we have fun? And before you know it, you've got the joie de vivre, which is the Italian essence, right? Great food, great films, great beauty, whatever, you know. And, and so, in other words, there is this sort of transition that does happen uh, in in history, but you know, there, I think we also have to remember that that great line of Lincoln's: "Can we not find the better angels of our nature?" And my experience with Americans is that there remains, in a way that you might not recognize from the media, a great middle way, and that's sort of what the Dalai Lama always speaks about—the middle way, which is, as I've gotten older, Steve seems to make more and more sense, seems to be more and more wise. Something my father told me. And, um, you know, the, the polarization of America. But I really do believe that there's a big middle America, not in the Nixonian sense of a middle America, you know, utilized to sort of exploit hatred and fear, but rather a true ground of good, decent people uh, inspired by the very best of, of, of what their country has been and what it can be. And I think, I think frankly, for all the way that we like to and are almost called upon to criticize the follies of American foreign policy. You know, I, I when 9-11 happened, I wrote a long broadsheet called Toward a Global Declaration of Interdependence. Mm. And it was published full out in our, Canadian, our national paper in Canada. It was picked up in Europe, uh, reprinted all over the world. The one place that it would not be printed was the United States, because what it really called for was to for us to understand the fundamental elements of the challenge of 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 of, uh, of um, inequity in the world, but also um, what is really going on in the Middle East, right? And um, uh, it was neither pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian. It was simply we have to recognize that there are forces at work here. There are reasons to be quote unquote hated, if you will. Well, you know, obviously, no American would touch that. But, but, but the thing is that I think for the sake of the world in the short term, it's hard to see uh, whatever country might be in line to displace America in terms of international dominance that uh, I'd, I'd uh, want to be living in. You know, it's a fascinating thing to sort of look and posit the future. And, you know, I, I sort of feel as if um, we are changing. We're in an inflection point and don't know what's coming next. I'll also tell you that in 2016, I interviewed then-Vice President Joe Biden 
about the domestic political scene in America, and he said to me that the Democratic Party had become a party of snobs, and that where they did not feel what was happening to people on the street that had lost their jobs in the financial crisis, that were struggling over race and identity and drugs and opioids, et cetera, and that we were getting a lot of this wrong. And I just love, you know, from your... Um, I, I know that you're deeply ingrained in America in a lot of fronts, but you also have a kind of offshore perspective. How do you look at Biden and his approach so far? Is he solving the snob problem, or do you suspect that this is going to take much, much more work um, and work through for us to get into a different place? I, I think he, he was right on point with those comments. You know, whether he's been able to deal with it, he's only been in office for a while and he's been overwhelmed by the debacle in Kabul. I mean, I think I, th I think that, you know, the, the, re the retreat, the um, abandonment in the sense of Afghanistan um, was as catas cataclysmic if, if, um, and, and unanticipated as that from Saigon in 1975. But in defense of Biden, I suppose, how else were they going to ever get out? And mm. I think it was never going to be pretty. And inevitably, whether they like it or not, they were going to leave countless people behind who would undoubtedly become victims of the um, of the Taliban, or in the case of South Vietnam, Vietnam, of of the of um, of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. Mm. So, but this business of snobbery, I think it's true. I mean, I think you know, I think a big part. I mean, I I think the Trump uh, cohort, if you will, the supporters were not nearly as monolithic as they were often. Um, uh, depicted as, as they were reduced to caricature. Mm. Um, there, there is something on the left, particularly in this sort of woke orthodoxy that has particularly infected the universities, where all words walk on eggshells. And there's a kind of a, a almost tyrannical orthodoxy of opinion that if you deviate from, you are not only wrong, you are demonized. And this is, I'm not, uh, as a university professor, I can I can say that this is not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating, and I think I think that that kind of um, that conceit, the anticipation of you know social engineering based on their values alone, uh, the ideology of the left, I think, can be as um, offensive to people as the uh, as a kind of uh, intolerance of the right, and that's that's where we have to somehow find a way. Um, to the middle in in terms of balance and and uh, understanding and some kind of recognition that if we're going to move our way forward, we have to understand that on any issue of public policy, there cannot be enemies. There can mm. only be solutions. Well, I have to say that I'm just very grateful for a real discussion with real terms that's candid uh, and not as controlled. So I want to just say thank you very much. Wade Davis, anthropologist, botanist, photographer, author, explorer in residence. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Steve. So what's the bottom line? My guest is not the first to predict that the American empire and the American dream are fading. What is happening is that America's identity at home and abroad are being sorted out. But don't be so quick to dismiss America. Ultimately, the mix of cultures with diverse backgrounds and experiences is a huge strength that most other nations don't have. In working through its racism and the gap between rich and poor, the United States may come back ultimately healthier and less dysfunctional after COVID. I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but the soul-searching that America is experiencing right now 
may just be a driver of positive change. And that's the bottom line.